This is WRUULP Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM and WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with global soul. Welcome to Art on the Air. Excellent. This program is an hour-long interview show dedicated to the visual arts in Savannah and the surrounding area. Each episode features guests in conversation about their philosophy, practice, and current projects, as well as commentary on the state of the visual arts in our community. This is how you do it, kids. Now here's your hosts, David Laughlin and Rob Hessler. And this is Art on the Air. I'm your host, Rob Hessler. This is a special field note edition. So David Laughlin will be joining me later when we get to one of our field notes. We've got a great show lined up for you today, you all. I think you're really going to enjoy it. We had the opportunity to head on over to the Jepson Center, where I spoke with curator Rachel Reese and artist Suzanne Jackson to talk all about Suzanne's incredible exhibition, Five Decades There's a special opening tomorrow evening from 6 to 8 p.m. over at the Jepson Center, and it sort of opens to the normal hours of the museum on this coming Friday. It's a really great interview. You're not going to want to miss that. Later in the show, we're also going to be catching up with Kevin Clancy. He and Chris Fisher have opened up a new project space called the Hen House, and it's down at 39th and Haversham. It's a really interesting space. They're trying to do some really unique and different things. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing all about that from him. David and I both got a chance to speak with him. So that's a really, that'll be a fun interview. We're going to sort of end the show on that one. But we're going to start with our first of the three field notes of the day, speaking with Kristen Hafke. And she is an illustrator who just completed her work on a lovely children's book called Willow and Oliver in the Case of the Missing Sock. And that was produced in collaboration with New York Times bestselling author of Pete the Cat, Kim Dean. And I got a chance to look at this book and I got to tell you, it is a really great book. It's a great story. And of course, she's a local. And in fact, the setting for the book is called Ardsley Park. Now, it's not exactly the Ardsley Park that we all know, but it's her version of Ardsley Park, and I think it's really cool. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Let's listen to Kristen Hafke. I spoke with her over at the Foundry Coffee Shop, and I think you're really going to enjoy this. Art on the Air, Rob Hessler here with Kristen Hafke. We're going to be talking about her latest project here. So Kristen, why don't you tell us what you've got going on? So I just finished illustrating a book called Will and Oliver in the Case of the Missing Sock. Now, obviously, this is a children's book. Now, why don't you tell us a little bit about how did this project all come about? Because this is a project that you're doing with Kimberly Dean, who is probably best known for her work on Pete the Cat, which is a New York Times bestselling series of books. So talk a little bit about that, because... You know, obviously you've been working in the arts for quite some time, but this is a pretty big project. Kim and I actually met because I have a dog walking pet sitting business, and I met her in 2013, started walking her dog then, and 
I made a Christmas present for her, which was a pet portrait of her dog, Emma, and she absolutely loved it, and we started talking. She didn't really have any idea I did painting or illustration or anything, and we started talking about it, and she said she had this idea that she always wanted to do as a side thing from Pete, and I did some sketches for her of a sloth and a hedgehog, which are the main characters in the book, and... She fell in love with the sketches, and it just kind of went from there. So talk about these characters, Willow and Oliver. Obviously, you're working with somebody else who has sort of the vision of the story, and it's your job to bring those characters to life. So talk about that process for our listeners who might not know sort of what goes into creating a book and how this all sort of works. So for me, I started by researching a million pictures of sloths and hedgehogs from all angles to figure out how they look in real life, and then kind of creating them as more whimsical children's book characters from that. And then Kim and I actually would go back and forth and discuss like what their personality should be. For instance, Willow the sloth is into yoga and meditation, and she's the more <laughs> laid-back one, takes things slow. And Oliver is the crazy hedgehog that has way too much nervous energy and just wants to go, go, go and get things done quickly and kind of what their relationship would be like and how that would play out in this detective story of them trying to make their way through the Ardsley Park forest and find clues and work together. Well, and I love that you've taken a place in savannah and obviously maybe a lot of the readers who are outside of savannah might not know that you're specifically referencing actually the neighborhood that you live in which is really cool kim lives in arsley park as well so i'm interested in did you try to like incorporate stuff like i mean you know obviously you're you spend a lot of time walking around arsley park right i do every day the beginning and the end of the book actually have a map of arsley park it's by no means an actual It's not an accurate street map. It's not like you're going to, it's not a copy of Google Maps uh, Street View. Exactly. But the, I got the idea for doing a map for the book, actually from a children's book I used to read when I was a little kid called Sweet Pickles. I don't know if anyone else is familiar with those, <laughs> but each book was about a different animal. And in the beginning and end of every book, they had the same map of the little city that they lived in. And I thought it'd be neat to do the same thing for this book. Well, let's talk about the visual style because one of the things I love about it is it's pretty unique. It's obviously very child-friendly, but you're using watercolors. Did that come about because of the dog portraits that you did, or how, what did, how did you decide on the style of the book? No, actually, the pet portrait I did was in acrylic. We just thought that watercolor would be a nice, soft, and kid-friendly medium to use. Both Kim and I have always liked children's books that are more on the soft side and not as bright colors and primary colors and just kind of just had a little softer feeling to it, especially considering that it's a sloth, is the main character that moves slower and kind of more delicate looking. Nice. And so as far as the characters moving through the story, because obviously you're illustrating, so you're having to kind of tell a story visually. Did you have the whole story out in front of you or were you just kind of like working hand in hand? How did the process go with working with a writer like sort of step by step as you were putting the book together? For this particular process, she had the idea in her mind, just the basic idea that it would be a sloth and a hedgehog, and they were going to solve the case of finding this missing sock. And, you know, we actually went through different characters of who the sock thief would be and kind of settled on the fox. And Fox is always getting a bad rap. Right, right. <laughs> it was going to be a raccoon at first, and then we thought, you know, fox would be better, raccoon's a little too obvious, and... She had a lot of the plot of the story in her mind already, but it kind of became one of those things where 
I would draw some things and then it would give her an idea and then she would write some stuff that would give me an idea and we just kind of being two blocks away from each other it was easy to go back and forth and we could actually work with her showing me what she's done and me showing her what I've done whereas I think usually the process is you get a manuscript and somebody tells you what to draw so in that way I was very lucky and it was a much more fun process I think. But also a big process because I know that having spoken to you and you and I are friends so I've kind of known that you've been working on this project for quite some time and it has been in many many stages getting to the point of publishing the book and obviously there are many different ways to kind of go about that for our listeners who might be interested in this kind of thing because you know I know a lot of our listeners are illustrators talk a little bit about that that process because there's it's so much more than just well somebody has an idea of a story and then there's an artist who's going to draw it and then all of a sudden you just have a book there's a lot more that goes into it than that right I did do a lot of preliminary sketches um, and I would bring them over and show her to see what she thought and you know we talk about well what if it was this way instead, or what if Willow was actually really into yoga, and that would be really neat to have her doing all these yoga poses, and play up even more the idea that she kind of takes her time, and, you know, take a breath, and let's figure this out, and the hedgehog's running all over the place, so a lot of preliminary sketches, and then final sketches, and then, honestly, in this case, she kind of let me run with it, and after I did the first painting, she loved it so much, she just said, go ahead and do all the paintings and I trust you and I'm sure they're going to be beautiful and when I show them to her she loved them and I don't know I don't think it was the way it normally works but that's how it works for us this time. well that's great though I mean I think that obviously giving you the freedom and it ended up working out really well the drawings are really beautiful talk a little bit about the process of actually putting the book together because there's there's a lot that goes into the period between writing and illustrating the book to the actual book arriving at your house in a hardcover form so talk a little bit about that right i had all the paintings i had done i scanned them in and then you know tweaked them a little bit in photoshop made the colors a little more brilliant you know photoshopped out all the hairs from my various dogs in my house and <laughs> When sent them on to a woman in Asheville, North Carolina. She was our editor, and Kim sent her the words, and then she put the book together, and her and I actually worked very closely together. She would send me files to make sure the words look good in the right place and everything. And then she sent those files on to a printing company in Massachusetts. I think they're called King Printing. And they printed out the books for us and shipped them to us about three weeks ago. And so we are, at this moment, self-published and selling. And in fact, if people want to see what this project looks like, how can people get more information? Because I know now, obviously, the book is for sale. But if people also want to check out your artwork, because it is really beautiful. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's so striking is not only, you know, obviously, I've gotten a chance to see some of the images. And we've shared some of them on the Art on the Air Facebook page for listeners if they want to check those images out. How, if people want to learn more about the book, how can they do that? I have a website. It's kristenhafke.com. The book is also for sale online at petethecat.com. It's for sale at Punch and Judy down in Habersham Village and at Blue Heaven Gallery on Tybee Island. That's actually Kim Dean's gallery that she owns. And we're going to do a book signing at Punch and Judy on August 3rd from 2 to 4 p.m. Well, that's very cool. And kristenhafke.com is K-R-I-S-T-E-N-H-A-F-F-K-E.com if people want to check that out. Kristen Hafke, thank you so much for being on Art on the Air Field Notes today. Thank you, Rob. It was fun. 
and this is Art on the Air on WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings Community Radio with Global Soul. That was our interview with Kristen Hafke, talking all about her latest book, Willow and Oliver in the Case of the Missing Sock, book for which she did all of the illustrations and we did share a number of those illustrations actually on the Art on the Air Facebook page. So you can go over there and check that out. I think you'll really, really love them. I mean, they're so beautiful. The book turned out really great. It was really great sitting down to talk with Kristen. I've known her for a long time, and she's a great friend, and I really think she's a tremendous artist. And, of course, she collaborated on that project with New York Times bestselling author of Pete the Cat, Kim Dean. And, of course, you can pick up that book at all the places that she mentioned during that recording. Let's get into our next field note here, and this is a nice long one. I think you guys are really gonna enjoy this. This is my chat with curator Rachel Reese and artist Suzanne Jackson, talking all about Suzanne's Five Decades exhibition. It's a career survey exhibition. It opens tomorrow, Thursday, June 27th. Special opening from 6 to 8 p.m. tomorrow night. Then it'll be open its normal museum hours starting on Friday. You're going to love this interview. I promise you that. Here we go. Rob Hessler here with Art on the Air Field Notes. I'm at the Jepson Center at the exhibition Suzanne Jackson, Five Decades, which is opening this Thursday. I have Suzanne Jackson and Rachel Reese here. Suzanne, why don't you get us started by telling us sort of an overview of what this show is all about? The exhibition is a retrospective of works from 1959 to 2019. And it's almost a life story in a sense because I've moved from, I was born in the middle of the United States. I lived in California. I grew up in Alaska. I went to college in California. I was in grad school in New Haven. I live here in Savannah permanently since 1996. And I've traveled working all around the United States. But My feeling is Havana is really a beautiful city. We have so many artists here. And my retrospective is not just for me. This is something that I'd hope to do because I know that there are artists who were students here, people who've come who are writers, musicians. We have incredible musicians are from Savannah originally, historically. And I feel that people coming as tourists or as visitors need to understand that there are artists who need to be supported here. And I'm hoping that this exhibition will help the artists who live in Savannah receive more support. We have Rachel Reese as a contemporary curator now who actually visits artists in their studios. We did not have that opportunity before. So for me, this represents not just my work because it really is just a fraction, actually, of the works that I've done in my life, even though this is a huge exhibition. For me, I'm sharing it with everyone. And in the betweens, there are representations of people that I've known in Savannah and around the country who have supported me and who have been artists with me. And speaking of studio visits, Rachel, you have visited Suzanne's studio many, many, many times over the last several years putting this show together. Tell us a little bit about that process. We're obviously now everything is going up on the walls, but there has been so much that's gone into this exhibition over the last couple of years. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So Suzanne and I have been working on this project officially for over two years. I think it was June 2017 when we sort of officially launched the 
a sort of approval and planning stages of this exhibition. But I met Suzanne earlier in 2017, actually, after the Nick Cave opening. If you remember the Nick Cave exhibition, Suzanne approached me after my lecture and introduced herself. And she was an artist that I was trying to get in touch with and go to her studio. So it was very serendipitous. But yeah, Suzanne and I have been working for several years on this, and it's really been an unearthing and an organizational project as much as sort of a getting to know her, not only through her work, but through her life story. And it's been a real joy for me to experience sort of figuring out the unique puzzle of editing it all together as a cohesive exhibition, right? How to represent an entire life story, an entire artistic output into one exhibition space. So that's been the unique challenge that I have had over the past few years. So again, you know, not only just representing her visual artwork, but all these other interesting creative facets to her life. You know, she was a costume and set designer, um, a poet, a dancer. You know, these are all part of who Suzanne is as an artist. And we wanted to make sure that entire story is told and shared. Right, and let's talk a little bit about that, because in addition to all of the pieces that are here on the walls, there are paintings, there are installation pieces, but there are also these boxes that just have so much material from your past, Suzanne, that sort of tell not just the story of your artwork, but of your life. And obviously going through all of those various pieces and looking back at the past and trying to tell your story, that must have been quite an undertaking. It was, and there were albums and drawers and notebooks that I had begun to try to organize them just for archival reasons, but there were some things that I'd completely forgotten. I hadn't gone through family albums, and the incredible team of interns that Rachel put together last year from Spellman and Scad and from Parsons. They were just so excited and curious. And this is part of the reason I was saying this has been a younger team of artists and curators and everybody working, you know, for public relations, much younger generation than I am. So people being curious about historically how did we look, how did we dress, and finding things about me that I had forgotten. Uh, I even found some of my early drawings that my mother put away in a hope chest that I didn't even realize that I had done. And re-looking at photos of my family in Alaska and my original photographs when we lived in San Francisco. My mother made most of my clothes, so there are photos of the clothes that my mother made for me. And when we lived in Alaska, she made my parka. So it's sort of fun to see. And then I don't have all of my files. Files were lost moving in storage, so a lot of my professional dance photos were lost. But it was interesting, I think, for everybody to see me as a teenager doing some of the things that I was doing then. And coming from Alaska, you know, having grown up there, people, especially as a, you know, a black artist, or, you know, a person of color, they don't think about the international community that's, you know, growing up in Fairbanks before it became a state. It was a territory. And we had an interaction with Canada and people from Russia and all over the world. So my perspective tends to be global, even in my upbringing. And moving to the South, I've learned so much about family history and history of the United States. So that's part of what this exhibition also represents. 
Well, let's talk about uh, one transition which you made, which was, of course, you, you're talking about your time in Alaska, but then you spent a great deal of time on the West Coast. And as we're sort of talking about these boxes, which have these artifacts from your past, there's a lot of detail about your experience running and being a part of Gallery 32. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's a really fascinating part of your history. It seems to be a prominent history now. At one point, I thought Gallery 32 was forgotten because some of the artists who have become very well-known as a result never mentioned Gallery 32. When I was looking through, I was teaching at SCAD, I was looking through the College Art Association. Uh, they have a call for proposals. And a couple of historians from Boston were asking for proposals. And there it was, a proposal for anybody who knows anything about Gallery 32. So I presented a proposal at Boston. And they said, well, yes, we'll take you since you should know about it. And I, I, was there, I was there with slides. Everyone else had CDs. And Damon Willick, who was a professor at Loyola Marymount, was doing a presentation on Ed Keenholz. So he went back to talk with his director, Carolyn Peter, who was an incredible researcher. She found things in the way that Rachel has researched this show. Carolyn P- Peter found the artist, found all sorts of information on Gallery 32. It started because I had just come from South America as a dancer. I graduated from college at San Francisco State. I auditioned for Sacramento Music Circus, and that company was going on tour of Mexico and South America. We rehearsed and performed in Mexico, then we toured 11 countries in South America. I then moved to Los Angeles. Just at the time that it was the love-ins and the human beings in San Francisco, I was there for the first one, and then I got to Los Angeles, I was there for the first love-in, and I was actually looking for studio space. That's all I knew that I was supposed to do as a painter, look for a studio. And after living in an underground studio in a storefront and a wonderful villa on a hill that was sold, and I was taking class from Charles White at Otis Art Institute. Mm which is in the MacArthur Park area of Los Angeles, downtown. I love that area. It's bustling. There's people from you know, all the Latin countries. And it smelled like South America that I had just come from. And then I found these beautiful buildings, the Granada buildings. And it was very much like a hotel I'd stayed in in Montevideo called the Alhambra. And I thought, this is the building I want to be in. I'm going to have my studio here. You could live upstairs. Originally, the building was made so that uh, women could have living space upstairs and a little business downstairs. Mm. And I found the space. But because I was in the class at Charles White's class, David Hammonds was in that class. And I think later, Alonzo Davis, some other artists were in the class. And they said... When they saw my space, they said, you should have a gallery in here. And I said, no, this is my studio. I don't want a gallery. I'm supposed to work. And somehow I ended up with friends having an exhibition there. And it just (laughs) went on for two years. And it was more of a space because I was used to the way life was in San Francisco. Coffee houses and jazz around every corner. I had studied ballet in San Francisco. And my friends, we all just spent time in San Francisco at college. We would go from either rehearsal or painting class, and then we would go and peek in and listen to the jazz and the blues coming out of the clubs and coffee houses in Berkeley. It was just a very active time in 19, late 1960s. And, of course, there was a Vietnam War. There was all sorts of things going on in this country that activated us as young people. And we just did things. No one told us we couldn't do what we 
thought we should do that was right. And so that space in Gallery 32 was really a place for people to get together, artists to get together to talk. We didn't have a lot of money, and it was just sharing. We actually shared, and artists would come in and put a work up. David Edmonds was famous for that. You know, he's had shows, and he's famous for not having a gallery, just walking into wherever he wants, and he makes the rules. He did the same thing as a young artist, and it probably is my fault, um, <laughs> because I let him walk into the gallery and just put up a work of art at his own reception. And it was the artists actually presenting their shows, and several people would walk in. One artist would tell another artist, or people would pass by, and if they had some really good quality work or work with a message that we thought was important and should be said because the, uh, we weren't being represented at other galleries, that was what we were doing at Gallery 32 for two years. Well, that's an incredible story. And, of course, you can see so many artifacts, including photos of the space. And there's one exhibition that there's a few photographs of as well, an installation there. But I wanted to ask you, Rachel, there was something that really stuck out with me with what Suzanne just said. She thought that people had forgotten about Gallery 32. As you're putting this exhibition together, you and Suzanne are working hand-in-hand to put this exhibition together. How is it that you kind of decide, well, this is something that it's time for people to remember? It's really hard. I mean, I think it took a lot of many, many months of listening, looking, without any plan in place. I don't think we had a plan in place maybe until a year after maybe just looking and continuing to discuss. You know, I feel like my approach in the very beginning was just trying to absorb as much information as I could because how do you know what to show or what framework you're supposed to put around something until you have all of your information. I feel like this project could continue into multiple projects. We've talked about it could be multiple books, multiple catalogs, but this is sort of a first stop at a look at an entire career's output. And there were some really hard editing decisions, you know, we had to make. And some of those things were related to scale and just thinking about our exhibition galleries. Some things were related to, you know, condition of, you know, archival object or the location of an object and, you know, budgeting, things like that. So we were really trying to balance all of those factors and make sure we were presenting the best story with the limited amount of space in this gallery. So, you know, we have 42 works that span 60 years and then seven cases that sort of look at different topics her life in Savannah, her life in California, her early life and upbringing, and then some specific call-outs, so a case about her murals in Los Angeles in the late 70s, and some ephemera around that, a case about her theater career, working in scenic and costume design. That's a big part of her story from the 1990s really to the present day, how it impacts these double-sided paintings, right? So there are moments and there are through lines in this entire exhibition, and we were walking through earlier just saying, oh, it's so nice how we can, a quote from that we had picked up on earlier now represents in a different way in another case or through an artwork. So we know, the two of us know a lot more about this exhibition than the public is ever going to know, but we do hope there's really important kind of there's key things that seep out and that somebody might be able to grasp onto and find many different points of entry in the show. I mean, it was a really hard process, I will say. We did have to make some hard decisions and have to understand that, you know, we can't show everything, but we hope that, you know, the presentation that we put together does 
her story justice. You know, it is the largest, most comprehensive show of hers in her entire career. So there's also a big responsibility there, and that's something I was thinking about too. Well, let's talk about the works then in the show, because essentially you have the work spanning through two gallery spaces, one which sort of encompasses most of your career from, well, there's a portrait from when you're 16 years old to your time spent on the West Coast and then several other galleries that you've been involved in over the years, kind of leading up until your time in Savannah. And then there's a second gallery which has the newer works. Before we get into the newer works, let's talk about the older pieces because I know that people sort of recognize you for those pieces. And I'm sort of curious how you went through the process of deciding Because there's often a difference between what an artist thinks are their best works and what are important while they're working throughout their career versus what maybe the public or critics maybe think is important and what is good work. So considering that you were collaborating with Rachel on putting this show together, how did the two of you decide, well, these are the works that are going to define your art career from age 16, that first painting, until sort of the more contemporary works? When Rachel visited my studio, I hadn't thought about it at first, but I'd had that early painting. Did I have it hanging up in the kitchen or not? It was in the kitchen. And it wasn't until later that I thought, oh, that's the painting I did when I was 15, 16 years old, teaching myself to paint with oils from how to paint books from the pharmacy, where I bought records and comic strips and classics illustrated and and those how to paint, how to put down the you know, the first layers of paint and how to prime the canvas, all those things I was teaching myself. This is WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM and WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with global soul. The other works, I have to say, Rachel managed to get the museums to agree to those pieces almost immediately from the very beginning, but there are... Many of my works, because I had an excellent dealer in Los Angeles back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, Ancrum Gallery, Mm -hmm. and there are many collectors in Los Angeles who hold large works of mine and works from those early periods, but they won't let the work go. Because there have been a number of catalogs and books published, people refer to the works that they are familiar with that have been published already. For example, uh, Los Angeles had the large exhibitions called Pacific Standard Time with 60 galleries and museums represented. The works that were borrowed for that exhibition were from some of my early collectors who were very kind to loan that work for about five years. So those works are being referenced over and over and over again and being borrowed from one exhibition to the the next. There were other books that were published back in the 70s and people know those works. But it's as if because I moved around so much and finally settled in Savannah, and this is my whole point of people beginning to recognize Savannah. It it felt as if I was just lost here in Savannah Mm -hmm. working, but I was also teaching and painting. And I had the pleasure, really, of being here and just in my studio to work with no one bothering me or telling me what to do. But I think because of those early publications that have been presented over and over again, some people have also been teaching my painting in the universities, which I did not know, and they've been teaching based upon those early publications. And I know that anyone walking into this gallery, this new work, and I appreciated you know, your having 
pleasure coming into the new works because that's what I wanted people to see. I actually, even though Rachel said we had no plan, I had a plan many years ago when I walked into this new museum and I said, I'm going to have an exhibit in this museum and I'm going to fill the whole space. I made that plan a long time ago. <laughs> I, I will make that public now. And It's too late. It's too late to turn back now. I'm not. Yeah, this is exactly what I wanted to do. And I had no idea, even when I made that plan, that I would be working with this pure acrylic. Some of the artists who live here now, there was a joke that I used to talk about this Nova Super Gel that I use that will hold anything, even a house. I repaired my house mm. with the paint that I use and even painted the outside of my house with the paints that I use in my paintings. And it's upheld, you know, for 20-some years. So it's a strong paint. And I'm just dying for the people who are coming from all over the country to see this exhibition because they will be very surprised to walk in to see the difference between what the new work is and what the early work is. I have been working with acrylic paints ever since the early 60s when they were introduced. They were a totally different paint then. Some early paints that I had to go back and reglaze them or use some of the new mediums in order to make sure that the paint was really secure and vibrant. And now I'm using the medium itself as pure paint mm. on paint. Mm. And that's going to be a big surprise to so many people when they see the work. I've had some hints on Facebook where I'm mixed in and in all the work and people are thinking it's going to be this jammed up group of stuff hanging out of the ceiling. But this exhibition is put together so brilliantly and beautifully by the team that worked here. And there's space for people to walk in and out and all around the works and see the work very simply without having too much to look at at each, you know, at a time. You know, I'm an artist and I I don't think about my career, really. You know, like, you just make work. When you're working, you make work. It's not about, oh, what is this going to look like in 50 years? But now you're having this retrospective, and as Rachel said, it's really 60 years if you count those first paintings. So I kind of ask you, you know, when you're working and you're involved in all these things, you know, you might have like a five-year plan or a vision of like what's going to happen. Maybe I'm going to have a show in a, a year or two, but it's hard to really look that far into the future. So I'm going to ask you... You know, now that you're having this time to really look at all of this stuff, it's all of your work. This is this is your career here in two galleries, essentially. In what ways might it look a little bit like you envisioned? And in what ways has it gone just completely in a way that you would have never expected? Well, there actually are... And I actually, I've said this to Rachel so many times, she's probably sick of me. I say it's not my career, it's my life work. Mm-hmm. And... There's a great deal missing from this work. There are 15 pieces at the gallery that represents me in Illinois. There's another 15 pieces at the gallery in Los Angeles. And there's some other pieces around and in collections. So this is really just a bite of the works that were in my studio. And then now that the studio feels very empty, there's still another 15, 30 pieces in this. Because I was able to just work here in Savannah. Right. And I'm amazed at the schedule that we have the years I was teaching painting at SCAD, almost 20 years, 15, 20 years. It seems like it's been that long, 15 years maybe, that I was accomplishing so much. 
But even this weekend, you know, I, I had started another painting for another exhibition. Yesterday I thought I was going to be calm and quiet, but I had to put that piece down and continue working on it. That's just the way it is. You can't stop and you have to keep painting or making sculpture or doing whatever you do, writing, making music. Uh, this city is for every person in this in Savannah, to me, as an artist, no matter what they're doing, mm. because of the creative spirit. You know, the jobs have creative essence. This isn't everything. And I feel as if there's beginning of me and there's the recent me. Mm-hmm. And we have only two or three pieces that are kind of the middles in transition of the 80s into the 90s mm-hmm. that are not here which at one point sort of bothered me, so I grabbed a couple of other pieces and said, Rachel, we have to put this in because this represents the real transition. Well, I feel now even the works that are in the studio are the real transition of how these new pieces came into being. They're not pieces that necessarily would fit within this exhibition, but there's one piece that has to do with the, the hurricane, the storms that we had. Those were shown in Alabama because it was right during that period, right after the big hurricanes we had. There are pieces where I was beginning to experiment with materials adding into the acrylic, but they don't necessarily fit in the show. Rachel surprised me with some pieces that I probably never would have chosen you know, to be here, but they make sense for Savannah, especially mixed with the information in the vitrines and the boxes that sort of help people understand what this is all about. (laughs) All right, I've got two more questions for you. And the first thing I want to ask is you mentioned Rachel and the brilliance of her helping to put this exhibition together. This is a real embracing by the museum of a local artist. And I want to ask you, what do you think museums can do to sort of bolster and support local artists? Because this is a really big deal. This is we talk about the kind of exhibitions that are in this space and to put you in that same conversation with those other exhibitions it matters a lot and it does sort of in a way legitimizes local artists as being equivalent to the other artists that you've shown here so talk a little about that like what role can a museum play in sort of supporting and helping to grow artists that are local to where they exist There have been a number of national artists who have shown in this museum who were friends, people that I knew, and it was interesting. I believe that there are, I know that there are many people who come to Savannah just to be quiet to work, and that that was my idea. Okay, I'll go to a place that's not so crazy like New York or Los Angeles. But also, for me at the time, this was like little San Francisco. San Francisco is a place where you can learn, you can make art. You don't sell very much art. Savannah's just like that. (laughs) Um, And it's beautiful. That was the whole point of being in an environment that's quite beautiful. But I think there needs to be a balance. It's, you know, for example, across the hallway is the Rembrandt exhibition. That's really extremely important for young artists to see masterwork, really good basic drawing and technique. Also to see national artists, but then there are many artists who live here. You know, as I said before, there are writers, musicians, artists who live here quietly, who, after you've been here for a while, you think, well, I came here to be quiet and just to be able to focus on my work, but then nobody's really paying attention to me, or people don't know what I do. And there are people who live here in Savannah who had extensive experience and exposure in other places 
and historically have ancestors and relevance in the South. People imagine, and when at one point I said to someone, oh, you should come to Savannah. Oh, who wants to go to Savannah, Suzanne? That was what was the response. And I thought, well, you know, it's much more sophisticated, and there's so many things to do in Savannah, really, that can be diverse. And people, new people come here thinking that this is going to be a most wonderful experience. And I think we've had the difficulty between what is old here, people trying to hold on to the old experience and history, Mm -hmm. not wanting to impose new history, like public works of art, that I remember we had some public art at one point that people could interact with, but it had to be moved because it was not the history, the historic art. There should be a combination of what is historic and what is contemporary, and I think this museum can do that. We have three museums here. The Telfair Academy, which I used to take my students and love to go there because there are really historic paintings, and I love the bellows, and I love the night, and I love the Italian women, and I was just talking about the paintings, the little old-fashioned paintings with the flowers, that, but they teach us how to paint. But this is a new space, a contemporary space, that really should be exciting and experimental for the artists who live here as well. If people study and do some incredible things at school when they're studying, then this gives the opportunity to expand the experimentation and also having curators come to visit. When you just work in your studio, and, and I, you know, I, my studio was just jam-packed because I was just working, working, and it didn't matter who came in because I'm an older artist. I come from a different period. Younger artists need to have exchange and conversation with others. And I could even imagine a forum within this space of younger artists interacting with one another as a result of a work that might might be collaborative, might be uh, a larger format of space, using the space in the way that I'm using the space. And I know that probably is making, that would make museum people nervous, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'm sure it would. But, you know, we are in the 21st century now. And since there are three museums here, there's this historic, you know, house with, you know, museum that was for the, represents the history of slavery. Mm -hmm. And then there's the academy, which represents a traditional kind of painting that's really important in sculpture. And that was the first place that I was taking when I visited here in 1981. That was the only place to come to. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed it. And I took my students there so they could draw and learn in that museum. And it's possible to come into a contemporary museum and also study and study what's going on. One, you know, one of the exhibitions that I love, and I don't think it was here, it was at Space, it was Bertha Husband, who had all of her mm-hmm. journals that related to the artwork and her travels. And I was so impressed with that because she was a person that was quiet, who lived here. People didn't know very much about her. But that was a way to learn about yeah. her history as a person who lived in Savannah. I'm going to ask you one last question here, and I, you mentioned the young artists. And I want to kind of ask you, you know, you're having this really phenomenal exhibition here in this space, and a lot of our listenership is our young artists that kind of all know each other to a certain extent, and they're trying to build this community. So I'm going to ask you, you've made a successful career. You've gone from place to place, and now you've got this exhibition here. What is some advice you might give to some of our younger artists who are listening here who are maybe struggling or questioning because you've persevered and the results speak for themselves? I think when I was teaching, I used to, there was a tiny book, Henry Miller, called The Smile at the Foot of the Ladder. 
and it was his paintings and poetry. And it, the, one of the things in the book said, what's most important is just doing it. Just do it. And I think I used to tell my students that when I was teaching. And you just have to keep doing it. And it's really hard because we, in our lives as artists, we go up and down. Doesn't matter whether museum, you know, musicians, poets, whoever we are, dancers, we live on an edge all the time. I think I have to say you just have to strive to make the best quality work that you can. Know what other artists are doing. Uh, and it's amazing because you may think you have innovated something or made something really new, and then you go online and you discover there's two other artists out there making something exactly like yours. That's really awful, you know, when that experience happens. But you still have to continue. I look to see what other artists are doing just so that I know what's going on. And I also strive to make it my own, to work from observation as opposed to copying and cutting and pasting. I see a lot of that now. Mm -hmm. And I think attempting to make work that is your own, to be original in that work, in the whole creative process is really important. Not to be afraid of criticism. People will criticize anyway, but you just do what you want to do, any what you you know the way you're going to do it. And sometimes it turns out really good. There are you know there are technical issues always, but then how do you turn those technical ideas or basics into your own work? Suzanne Jackson, Rachel Reese, thank you so much for being on Art on the Air Field Notes today. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> And this is Art on the Air on WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings Community Radio with Global Soul. Now, how great was that? Suzanne and Rachel were so generous with their time, and it was so great to be able to get into the museum before it even opened, and then, and they really gave me a nice little tour of the space, and Suzanne is just... Well, you know, I have to admit I was a little nervous when I sat down to interview the two of them. They were just so, the exhibition is just so incredible. And I want to talk just really briefly about that. You know, this is a really big deal because this is one of those times when a local Savannah artist is getting the kind of treatment that usually out-of-town artists get. And her work is spanning over two galleries, and it is a really big production Rachel, of course, mentioned that she's been working on this project for over two years with Suzanne. And it's really important that we as a Savannah art community come out and support this exhibition. This is one of those times where we can show a place like Telfair Museums that the local art scene supports the local artists. And so I'm hoping that I will see all of you out at the event tomorrow night. Suzanne Jackson in conversation with Alonzo Davis. That's tomorrow night, June 27th at 6 p.m. I will mention that you do need to pre-register for that. And you can go to telfair.org to get all the information on how to do that. And if you can't make it tomorrow night, just get out to that exhibition. I'm going to be going out to that exhibition. I hope you will too. Like I said, Suzanne and Rachel, really appreciate them giving me so much time and allowing us to share that with you. And I hope you really enjoyed that conversation as much as I did talking with them because Suzanne's work is really excellent. And it's one of those opportunities that we, we don't always get here on the show. So anyway, we've got another field note coming up here with Kevin Clancy. He's going to be talking all about the hen house. We've got to play a couple of quick messages 
And when we come back, we'll get to that interview. Be right back. Park Place Outreach is an emergency shelter that provides services for youth who are homeless, runaway, or victims of abuse, and is the only facility in Chatham County to which children can self-report without a family or agency referral. The shelter also provides a street outreach program to identify and help at-risk youth. If you need help, know someone at risk of becoming a runaway, or would like more information, call 912-234-4048 or visit parkplaceyes.org. How many times have you heard WRUU's corporate underwriting message? If you remember it, then your potential customers remember your message as well. We are offering this space to connect corporate and institutional partners with our loyal and active listeners. Underwriting on WRUU is short, so listeners don't tune out. It's exclusive, so your message won't be lost in advertising clutter. And it supports Savannah's only community radio station. For a marketing package to increase your reach beyond traditional media, email underwriting at wruu.org. Tonight on WRUU, tune in at 7 for It's a Big, Bad, Beautiful Noise, Alternative Rock and Electronica. At 8, The Blues Hour features all styles of the blues. At 9, Music Local and Sustainable is all about Savannah-based musicians with interviews and features. At 10, Theme Stream dives into a weekly musical theme. And at 11, Mink Mink's Alphabetical Hour brings you alphabetically arranged songs. Our latest schedule is always at WRUU.org. Thanks for listening. Rob Hessler and David Laughlin here, Art on the Air Field Notes. We're with Kevin Clancy. We're at his new space that he's put together with collaborator Chris Fisher. It's called The Hen House. Why don't you tell us what this is all about? So we just saw a need in the city where Savannah is so arts related and there just became less and less places to show. And the places to show that are here are generally affiliated directly with the colleges. So we thought about opening up a space and there was an opportunity. So for six months from May to November, we have access to the studio. We built out the wall space and uh, we started inviting friends and people that we knew outside of the fine arts field to come in here and host events, whether it be talks or workshops, showing fine art, putting up more craft related materials. And then we've been reaching out to other artists in the Southeast, mainly from North Carolina to Alabama to show once a month, we're trying to have sort of guest artists from outside the area. Rotating these. And from North Carolina and Alabama, I mean, you're far reaching. It's not just here. So they want to bring that into the culture here. We want to bring that here. Uh, So we've been reaching out to people that we've found. And then when you tell them we have this space, it's in Savannah. Some of them have never been here before. And uh, we have a young man from Atlanta we're bringing in, hopefully in July. And we're in discussion to bring a few glass artists from Asheville in in September. So, yeah. In addition, though, you're making a commitment to showing some stuff that's a little bit different because we talked a little bit before we went on the air about how some of the stuff that you're going to be showing here might be a little bit, I don't want to say strange, but out of the ordinary, maybe not quite as sellable. I walked into the space today and there's this piece on the floor that's sort of made up of cigarette butts, certainly not meant to be put on someone's wall. It's really more about the expression. So talk a little bit about that, sort of the vision of the space. 
Well, we definitely hoped to open up the possibility of people showing experimental work, whatever that really means. It's kind of a broad term, but I think that there are instances of performance art or if you did want to have a book reading, we have some friends that are really steeped in feminist and trans culture that want to have some sort of an open forum here. So providing an opportunity, a space with a price point that is not insane to get people in to do what they actually want to do where they might not have the opportunity otherwise that piece on the floor is a great example i think that the apocalypse circus that was at on view recently is like another example doing some kind of expression that does not necessarily translate to the capitalist system that we live in is tough and people want to express themselves that way eclectic and unique is what you're trying to promote you just had a group show. Obviously, this is kind of the first showing that is going on into the public. Tell us a little bit about that experience. How did that go for you? And then sort of how do you intend to sort of build off of that with future events? How are you getting yourself out there? The Yeah, the group show was 24 artists. We mainly reached out to a number of our friends. And then through that initial circle, it sort of expanded outward from there people that we knew that were following the instagram account then started following us that we weren't that we didn't know a lot of the work was more fine art related but then there was a piece from our artist in residence gonzalo hernandez where he dremeled directly into the wall in the space that piece by laying on the floor uh, is certainly I, I imagine he would sell it if you asked him but it's it's definitely a little bit more odd it wasn't made for selling it was made for expression Yes, I agree. So the initial thought was, let's get a group show in here. Let's get bodies in the door. They'll bring their friends. People will see the space. We can can have those kind of discussions and see who we can bring in and what their interests are. We have a few things coming up in July and August and September. People are, I think, rotating back into school, starting to get their momentum going again. So to round out this month, we'll be doing some workshops. I, I, in particular, I'm interested in woodworking, so we'll be having free workshops Thursday, Friday, and Saturday for frame building, panel building, and stretcher bar building for, for canvas stretching, for paintings. And then people can just come in and, and check it out, and hopefully that will lead to other such workshops, I hope. I want to ask a little bit about the space. You sort of briefly touched on it, about how you kind of transform the space to me, it very much looks like something you might see in a larger city, a sort of reimagining of a raw, almost industrial kind of space. Talk a little bit about what you've done to sort of create a space where it's not just artists coming and hanging stuff on bare walls. It's certainly not like the typical white cube. It's got a little bit of a grunge feel to it. It used to be a uh, a corner store, a grocery store. So if you look closely at the floor, there's a lot of like uh, old tile that wasn't quite peeled up. And the walls used to be this sort of panel, barn board sort of looking stuff. So we were we were willing at first to just show it in that sort of space, just paint it, make it look nicer. But then this is what it's going to be. And um, we discussed putting up new walls. So we built a hidden wall to cover some doors that house, um, you know, water heaters and things. Ultimately, we added about 50 square feet to the space or linear feet rather. Now you have this nice wall space where you can put up work and show sculptural work. We have a few pedestals and you can shoot against it and it does look really nice for photography. But when you're in here, the feel is definitely a little grungy. Uh, it's a little bit more edgy, I guess. And it's halfway between a warehouse and a house. Yeah. That's what it feels like here. We're in like our office space having this conversation and it's a bit more, it's a bit crazier. There's a lot of stuff back here. Should we talk There's about? still yeah. a spill on aisle nine. If people want to get more information about what you've got going on, because you mentioned the Instagram, I know that you've got 
uh, GoFundMe. So why don't you tell us about that? Tell us first about the Instagram and then tell us about the GoFundMe and what the vision is behind that. Sure. If people want to get in touch with us, HenHouseSAV is the Instagram account. HenHouseSAV.com is our website. You can see pictures of upcoming events on there. We do drop a lot of information on Instagram and on the website pretty regularly. Oh, and then the GoFundMe page. So originally we knew we didn't have a lot of time. This this sort of came about rather organically, like mm-hmm. the space has been built out. And we started working on this space first of May to essentially have a group show first of June, but we had no website, no email, no Instagram, no contacts. What's the problem? Just ground floor, really. La, 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 la. We'll make it work. And then we... We decided it would, you know, it would be really interesting to see if we could get a GoFundMe for the entirety of the cost of the front space. So we've we've sectioned it off into two thirds and one third. And this this back half that we're in is really our office. And this our friend Gonzalo, who's our artist in residency, he'll be showing in August with whatever he's making here during his time. And we thought if we could raise enough money through the GoFundMe page, which I think a lot of people do want to support the arts, they just don't know where to put their money, mm-hmm. that we could make the cost of the space totally free really just get rid of the pay for play. But at the end of the day, Chris and I are fronting our own money for each of the four week, each each month. And we're hoping that people will take over the space to use it. And if we make the full amount of money, then everyone will just get their money back and it, it will be zero. I think right now it's about 400 or $500. And if we divide that over 16 weeks, uh, everyone gets back, you know, 25 bucks. So every dollar that we make lowers the cost of the space for every other person that shows here with the goal of being sure. zero. And I think that if we do this again next next year, which our friend Martin, who uses this as a studio normally, he does go away every year, we'll have so much data and information from this first go around that we should be able to, and we plan to, look for. Can only improve. Right. And if we can find a grant for, you know, what's $4,000, it's actually not that much money. And especially where we have the, we're going to have the paperwork and we're going to have the data to support it can be done and it was done and we can do it better the second time around. So then we hope to do that next year, just fully funded. That's awesome. And we have posted the link to the GoFundMe on the Art on the Air Facebook page. If you would all like to check that out, the space is located at 39th and Paulson, the intersection there. But there will be upcoming events. Kevin Clancy, thank you so much for being on Art on the Air Field Notes today. Thanks very much, Rob. Thank you. And this is Art on the Air. I'm Rob Hessler. My co-host, David Laughlin, is somewhere out there, as usual. That was our interview with Kevin Clancy over at the Hen House. Really excited about this project space. I really like the, oh, I don't know do it in spite of kind of attitude there sees an opportunity and seizes it. He and Chris Fisher to put together this space and they've done a really nice job. It's a great combination of being sort of polished with nice, clean walls, nice, nice and flat, great opportunity to hot hang work in a professional environment, but then the floor is kind of ratty and as Kevin had described it a bit grungy and I just kind of like that. And I like that he's doing a alternative space that allows for the opportunity for those who are doing things that maybe are just a little bit different, a little less marketable and having their exhibitions there. So I'm curious to see if this works out and we're going to, after we finished up the interview, we were speaking with him 
and he's going to be sending us over a lot of the information about these upcoming events. So I, I for one, am going to stop by some of these things, see what they're up to, and and just go ahead and try to support this place because I like what he's trying to do, and I and I'm hoping for its success. Anyway, that's all the time that we've got for this week's episode of Art on the Air. We'll be back in the studio next week. This was a little bit of a special episode due to some technical changes that are happening at the studio, for the better, of course. And David and I will be there together, and we're going to be doing a special episode all about the 4th of July and how people have celebrated the 4th of July in the past. We're going to get a bunch of clips from a bunch of different artists all over Savannah. So tune in next week and every week to Art on the Air on WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings Community Radio with Global Soul. Talk to you all next week. Just like a cloud home.